0: In this episode, neurology resident Dave Ho interviews Dr. Tan Nguyen, an interventional neurology specialist. They talk on the topic of intracranial aneurysms. This is part one of two. A reminder that the purpose of this podcast is for education and not for direct medical advice. We hope you enjoy. Hello to our podcast listeners. Today, we're going to be discussing intracranial aneurysms with our very own special guest, Dr. Tan Nguyen the Director of Interventional Neurology at Boston Medical Center, and current President-elect of the Society of Vascular and Interventional Neurology. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Dr. Ho.
0: So we're going to do a two-parter today. Our Today's topic is going to be on the outpatient approach to unruptured intracranial aneurysms, and we'll also later be discussing the outpatient management of secured aneurysms and patients who have had subarachnoid bleeding. Really, the goal of care is to prevent devastating subarachnoid hemorrhage in a previously asymptomatic patient. So diving right into it, we know that approximately 2% or 1.8% of MRI brains in the U.S. with vessel imaging incidentally find cerebral aneurysms, a minority of which would rupture and cause aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. What predisposes an aneurysm to rupture?
1: First of all, thank you, Dr. Ho and Dr. Lau for the opportunity to share with you on brain aneurysms. Um, The main factors that predispose to aneurysm rupture are aneurysm size, meaning the larger the aneurysm, the higher the likelihood of it rupturing, and the smaller the aneurysm, the lower the likelihood of rupture. And the shape of the aneurysm can also play a role, meaning if there's an irregularity or an extra bump on the aneurysm, which we tend to call a daughter sac. There are some studies that suggest this could also predispose to aneurysm rupture. Uh, The location of the aneurysm can also play a role such that uh, aneurysms in the posterior circulation uh, may be more prone to rupture compared to aneurysms in the anterior circulation. And as far as if you look at the demographics go, uh, we think that there's a role of gender in terms of higher risk of aneurysm formation, not necessarily rupture in women compared to men. And also uh, vascular risk factors may play a role as potentially modifiable risk factors for aneurysm formation, i.e. high blood pressure and smoking could be involved in the process of aneurysm formation.
0: So... When we have a first-time patient presenting with an incidental aneurysm, what kind of workup is necessary? Is there a, for example, preferred imaging modality?
1: That's a great question, Dr. Ho. Uh, this all depends on what we're the patient we're seeing at hand and what the intention of the imaging study is. So for example, if you have a young patient with a medium-sized aneurysm, you probably want to get high-definition imaging to look at these potential characteristics of the aneurysm. And so you could do it either MRA, CTA, or diagnostic angiogram. MRI is probably the least invasive of all the modalities because it doesn't involve any radiation nor contrast. So that tends to be my preferred go-to when I'm just screening a patient. And then CT angiogram, if there was something I wanted to know about uh, definition of the aneurysm is another very good, non-invasive way of characterizing brain aneurysms. And finally, if there's a view to treat, then the diagnostic angiography is the gold standard, which is a procedure where we place a catheter through the groin or through the wrist uh, to take a look at the aneurysm and define the access to getting there and the anatomy or what we call the angioarchitecture to understand the aneurysm prior to recommending treatment to a patient.
0: Thank you. So related to that question, Uh, At what point when we as outpatient providers are evaluating a patient with an incidental aneurysm, do we refer our patients to interventional neurology?
1: Great question, Dr. Ho. So any aneurysm or suspicion of aneurysm, uh, a patient with family history of aneurysm, these are all good candidates for referral to a neurointerventionalist to better counsel the patient and discuss what we find with them in more detail. There are patients where it may not be necessary to refer, Uh, for example, a a patient who is older with lots of comorbidities. These are patients we would probably do medical management and would be well-staffed by a neurologist or a primary care doctor because meeting them probably wouldn't change management if they had a suspicion of an aneurysm or a one or two millimeter outpouching, which is very common in this population.
0: So what are we monitoring for specifically in a neuro-IR clinic? when patients present with an unruptured and untreated cerebral aneurysm?
1: There are several things we monitor. The vascular risk factors are still important. We're still treating the patient as a whole. So uh, we always ask about blood pressure. We check the blood pressure and make sure it's well controlled because this is part of their overall health and may also play a role with aneurysm formation. Uh, we always screen for if the patient is a, a smoker, we aggressively counsel against smoking because this is associated with uh, aneurysm formation and recurrence of aneurysms after coiling of an aneurysm. Uh, the other factors that we monitor for in our clinic is long-term growth, meaning can the aneurysm grow after one year or two years, which could potentially uh, relate to as vulnerability of the aneurysm to rupture. So it's been documented that aneurysms that grow have a higher likelihood of rupturing, albeit a small risk, um, than aneurysms that don't grow. So we tend to do MRI uh, after one year if the patient is MRI eligible, i.e. no pacemaker, uh, or sometimes two years or five years, depending on the anatomy location and stability of the aneurysm.
0: Wow. So when we uh, are assessing aneurysms for potential treatment modalities. What what surgical and endovascular techniques are available for treatment? And um, what are some considerations for determining the best and most appropriate treatment for each patient?
1: Another great question. So before we jump into that, I'd like to mention that medical management is still an in- a very valid treatment for patients with brain aneurysm, meaning there are a lot of patients that we don't treat because they're not good candidates or uh, by preference, they prefer not to be treated. And so those patients we tend to monitor with what we just spoke about in the prior question. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the patients who might have a higher uh, layer of risk or potentially anxious patient who has a family history of brain aneurysm rupture. Um, these patients we tend to be more aggressive with treatment, and so the field has really evolved towards more towards endovascular rather than surgical management. And I'll review those for endovascular. It, it's um, the coiling technology as of twenty to thirty years ago really revolutionized our field, and this is a non-invasive way of. Um, treating your aneurysm from inside the blood vessel so it doesn't require open brain surgery where we go through the groin or we go through the wrist and we place a catheter, which is a a plastic tube that goes to the aneurysm and place coils inside the aneurysm. And so this technology has also evolved into uh, stents or flow diverter-like devices where we place a stent or a flow diverter across the aneurysm to gradually close the aneurysm over time and the technology has even further evolved now we have these mesh-like devices that we place inside the aneurysm we call it a web device that is another uh, very fine method of treating the aneurysm so as you can see for endovascular we have many different strategies we can use to treat the aneurysm to optimize uh, safety and optimize long-term closure of the aneurysm as far as surgery is concerned, this was a technique that is uh, very classic and has been present for at least probably 40 to 50 years. And so it involves um, an incision across the head and then an opening to uh, find the aneurysm and place a clip across the aneurysm, which is also a very good technique for aneurysm treatment.
0: Wow. So. As an interventional expert, what are some perioperative management strategies you would uh, expect for an elective procedure, uh, such as coiling? Are there specifics that you inform to all your patients when treatment options are on the table?
1: Good question, Dr. Ho. So elective coiling to us means that the aneurysm is unruptured. So that's an important Mm -hmm. pretext to figuring out you know who are you treating are you treating a ruptured or unruptured so elective to us means unruptured aneurysm and so the specifics that we think about in preparing the patient are we optimize the vascular risk factors so we do counsel our patients to stop smoking as much as possible because we think that smoking can be associated with higher thrombotic risk peri procedure and also it's another good excuse to really try to get your patients off the off the cigarettes. The other thing that we look at is just medical stability, so making sure the patient is medically fit um, for the procedure, making sure their heart is in good condition so we have a pre-procedure evaluation for that in some patients, especially if they have multiple comorbidities. And then the other preparation we do specifically for the treatment is we often tend to give aspirin or Plavix in preparation in case we need a stent, then we have that option. And also we think that it might reduce peri-procedure risk of blood clotting. So we've had a good streak so far in the, the patients we've treated with this strategy. Wow. Um, the other important element we need to inform the patient is that uh, for every patient that we even put on the table, we inform them of the alternatives to treatment. So we make sure they know all the options for aneurysm management, which includes medical management, endovascular and surgical management. We review the risks, so we go through uh, a lot of detail to make sure they're well informed of the risks of the procedure, which includes stroke, bleeding and death, which are low, but these are a real risks, we have to inform them. And, um, and then we uh, give them some idea about what to expect after the procedure, which is usually a one day stay in the hospital. And then as long as everything goes well, they go home the next day.
0: Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and talking to me about these things. Uh, This is part one of two for our listeners. Uh, We'll be tuning in next time to discuss management post-coiling and post-procedures, as well as management of ruptured aneurysms. Thank you all for listening. This has been Neurology Clinical Pearls. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.